Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Fish are amazing creatures with a diversity of colors, shapes, and sizes. They truly are a diverse group of animals, and so are humans. This podcast is more about people than fish, which is also the case in fisheries, believe it or not. Any fisheries manager will tell you it's about working with people. The fish are the easy part. Here we focus on people and on extremely important topics, including the benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field of fisheries and aquatic sciences. Some topics may be uncomfortable at times, but this will be a safe zone from which everyone can learn. Although this is an initiative led by graduate students and supported by the American Fisheries Society and the Fisheries Podcast, it applies everywhere and to everyone and transcends fisheries. We strive for everyone to feel involved and included, no matter your country of origin, age, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexuality, and or disability. Hosts and guests are sharing their personal views, which they hold as their own. Humans struggle between what is right and wrong. Our personal morals and ethics are shaped by cultural norms and the ones that surround us, including our family, friends, classmates, and colleagues. Our podcast would like to critique your philosophy by challenging some of your personal beliefs regarding right and wrong. We are so glad you chose to listen and open your mind to these very important conversations. Thank you for joining us. Welcome everyone back to the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. My name is Leon Gua and I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today I have with me Hadley and George here to talk about inclusive hiring in natural resources and I'm super excited to have them here today. So I'm going to go ahead and have them introduce themselves. Hadley, do you mind starting? Thanks Leon for the introduction. Uh, my name is Hadley Baum. I am a PhD student I should say I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and I'm also in the Missouri Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. In my day job, if you will, I'm in a boat in a lake or in front of a computer analyzing data about fish, not usually doing stuff with inclusivity or hiring. I'm George Skelton. I'm a supervisor in the Fisheries Bureau for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I supervise our um, fisheries research section as well as our aquatic invasive species program. In my role in hiring for our department, I'm also a, a hiring facilitator. We have six to eight hiring facilitators that serve on a team that, that do a lot of hiring for our department. That is um, my interest for here today. So. Wonderful. Thank you both for introducing yourselves. And before we kind of get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today, I want you to do a little bit more of introducing who you are as people to our listeners. So I have a question for you. If you had to eat a fish slushy, blended fish, what fish or other aquatic critter would you pick to make that slushy with and why? That sounds pretty gross. <laughs> yep. <laughs> How gross are you? That's what I want to know. People say walleye tastes like whatever you cook it in. So maybe a nice walleye filet and some little savory spices, some breadcrumbs. Raw, I don't know though. Yeah, I'm not a, a big fan of raw food, <laughs> especially fish. So that would be tough for me. I think probably the closest I think I've had is smoked sturgeon. So maybe I would go for a, a sturgeon slushy. Yeah, I don't think I said that it had to be raw. You could technically blend a cooked fish, although I don't know how well it would blend. I would probably go like, I feel like this is very vanilla, but salmon. That could potentially be an okay one, but who knows? That might have been too gross of a question to start off with, but just break the ice a little bit. Okay, so we're here today because we had an interesting, I guess you could say, opportunity arise out of a talk that Hadley gave at the most recent American Fisheries Society meeting in Spokane. Hadley, the talk that you gave was called Best Practices for Improving Deja or Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Justice, and Accessibility in the Fisheries Employment Hiring Process. And you actually weren't even able to give this talk because you had gotten sick during the conference, but I believe George saw your abstract. Can you just tell us a little more about how this connection was made? Sure. And George probably is going to have to fill in some blanks for me. So you're correct. I submitted the abstract and recorded the talk and had it uploaded. And then the night before I was supposed to give the talk, I came down with something. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't COVID, but it wasn't fun. And I didn't think I had to go into a small room and share it. George had only seen the abstract. 
And I gather it's something that in preparation for the supervisor meeting that I ultimately ended up speaking at, the different planning folks from Iowa DNR were trying to find somebody who could talk about this, preferably with some type of agency-specific application. So yeah, George saw the title and abstract of my talk. I think he he suffered through listening to the recorded version. And then it kind of rolled from there. We sat down, hiring committee all together and discussed some ideas because, you know, we're taking a 12, 15 minute talk and making it into an entire afternoon workshop. And I do want to make sure to acknowledge that I did have a co-presenter on the talk for the AFS version. That's uh, Dr. Jane Rogosh, who's an assistant unit leader at the Texas Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. So yeah, that's how the connection was made. It was good to have a title and abstract still around. And I think it also shows how Attending meetings like AFS meetings, uh, parent society, or at regional levels, you make these connections that you never in a million years would have thought that would happen at that particular meeting. So it kind of highlights the importance of going to meetings like that and probably also branching out and trying to learn about something that's maybe beyond your everyday content for your job or your studies. Yeah, George, can you speak a little more to your perspective and when you first saw that abstract and talk, like why you then wanted to follow up on it? And leading up to the meeting in Spokane, I was serving on a committee for our department to plan our supervisors meeting. We have an annual supervisors meeting in the fall where we do training and and have other presentations. And one of the subjects we identified, it it almost aligned perfectly with with Hadley's talk. And and we were looking for a speaker and I sent her abstract back to the rest of the committee and and said, what do you think? And they said, find her and and figure out if she can speak. (laughs) And it, it was I mean, what her, her abstract kind of outlined exactly what we were looking for our, our meeting. So it was probably the, about an hour before Hadley decided she was sick before I connected with her. So we had a 20, 30 minute conversation and I said, she'll be perfect for this. So we um, invited her and I went to see her presentation later that afternoon and then she wasn't there. It was just a recording. But So I'm glad we connected when we did because it, it all worked out well for us. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I love that. Find her. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is a great reason why in-person conferences can be wonderful <laughs> for many reasons. So I do want to just take a quick step back and talk about why, Hadley, you and Jane put together a talk like this in the first place. I have heard people say on occasion when we talk about inclusive hiring or or trying to use diversity, equity, inclusion principles in hiring processes that you shouldn't be doing that. You should be focusing on hiring excellent people, the best people, right? So I'm wondering if you can just kind of address what do we mean by having a diverse or inclusive workforce or hiring process and why do we need to have that as one of our goals? I've also heard sort of the the argument or the reply that you need to hire excellent individuals. When I was a fisheries management biologist, I was working in the northern part of the state of Wisconsin for the state agency, there weren't tons of other small female fisheries biologists there, but I still wasn't diverse. Just adding me to the group of fisheries biologists working for the state helped make the group of fisheries biologists working for the state more diverse. And so I think that there's a lot of reasons that diversity is important and probably the number one at least in my book, is that the more perspectives you have, the easier it is to come up with a solution to solving problems. And what is science if it isn't solving problems? So the more different ages or people from somebody from a rural place versus a city or urban place, um, people with different racial, ethnic, cultural, religious backgrounds, all of those different identities are going to lead to us approaching any one problem slightly differently. And so I think one of the most important reasons to have a diverse workforce or a diverse team is that you're going to do a better job, more creative, maybe more efficient, 
whatever you define, you know, is better, you're going to be more easily, more creatively, more efficiently going to be able to answer problems or address whatever it is you're going to have to do. If you're working on a research question, if you're trying to figure out how best to explain something to a group of kids, having a mom of a four-year-old among the folks that are you trying to put on this kid training, probably you have a little bit better time, you know, speaking to elementary schoolers. And so in the long run, having diversity makes the team that you work for more excellent. And to say that implies that whatever does not constitute the majority, I say this in air quotes, normal or average is somehow not excellent in that statement. And I don't think that's true either. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Hadley. And often when we think of excellence and what we consider to have merit within like fishery science or natural resources more broadly, we have a very biased view of of what that is based on how we've been trained and what our peers have told us is important to have in an individual who you're hiring. But you're totally right. There have been studies that have been done. For example, having gender diversity on a team makes that team more productive than just having all women or just having all men, right? It's that same idea that having different perspectives together makes us all better and more excellent. It's not always necessarily about one individual, but our collective as a team and what we can accomplish together. So George, I'm curious, you mentioned that inclusive hiring was targeted as an important topic for the supervisor meeting. Was there something leading to that being coming a priority for your training? This meeting is, it was our annual supervisors meeting. It's all the supervisors in the department from wildlife, fisheries, environmental services. So there's 80 supervisors that come to this training every year. And hiring is a big, a big issue right now. Um, current hiring market is different than we've ever seen before. So it's something that, that we're looking at just in general. How, how can we make our hiring process um, adaptable to this current environment? And, and I think there's probably a lot of agencies that are looking at that. Our, our applicant pools are smaller than they were two years ago. And, and we just wanted to make sure that our hiring practices were up to date. And, and this is one of the issues we wanted to address because um, it's important to have a, a large applicant pool, but we also wanted to make sure we were having a diverse applicant pool and that we weren't doing something that was um, unintentionally causing it to have limited diversity. And that was a, a big part of the training, I think. It just We had a good foundation for our, um, our hiring process, but we're always looking for ways to improve it. And there's been a lot of research in this area and Hadley came and talked about a lot of that. And, and we're just looking for ways to improve our hiring process and make sure that our practices are up to date and that we're constantly improving them based on the best available science. Yeah, it's a really good point that there is kind of a employee shortage right now. They call it the great resignation, but it's really like the great shift of people into other industries or other careers and that it is making it very challenging for hiring managers. I've heard the same at my institution and I think it's true across the country, really. So I find that fascinating that it's also kind of an opportunity for revisiting and innovation and how you are doing hiring to try and resolve that issue. Because we're seeing some of our applicant pools or on average, our applicant pools are 42% smaller than they were just two years ago. So we had entry level technician positions two years ago where we had 80 applicants and now we're getting single digits. So um, it's very real. And that's what rose it to the level of our supervisors wanted to have more training on this, more ideas, just because we're seeing it across the board and it doesn't matter what type of position. We're just not seeing the applicant pools that we have kind of become accustomed to because it's a really easy to do great hiring when you have applicant pools of 80 to 100 people and, and you can make sure you're getting um, strong candidates in there and always hiring the best person possible. But when you start getting smaller applicant pools, then, then that gets more difficult. So. I'm curious with regards to hiring practices, Hadley, you mentioned you are a PhD candidate. Why are you interested in hiring practices when you are not a hiring manager yet? <laughs> you probably expect me to say, because I hope to get hired in another year, but <laughs> that's actually, well, I won't say that's not the case, but it was in a way the driving force for me ending up finding myself in Iowa, given the training. Before I was a PhD student, 
I wore some other hats. So I worked for a, a little bit, actually have a master's degree in wetland stuff, we'll just say, since now switch to fish. But it means I've worked for a federal agency. I've worked for a couple different state agencies, both as a full-time fisheries management biologist and a term or li- limited part-time biologist when I was coming straight out of school. So I've been on both sides of the table in interviews and I think I've seen people who I'm pretty sure would be very good candidates not get interviews or you question, why did that person get hired? And I think that's led me to have some frustrations. It's also led me to have some frustrations of, okay, why am I not getting an interview? So just going through that process of navigating the job market and having to hire, you know, summer interns or research technicians has made me think about hiring in general and how we do it. And then last year I was involved in hiring a assistant professor at the University of Missouri. So that's a tenure faculty position. And I thought that that process was very different than the hiring process I'd gotten familiar with at a state agency. In a way, it had some more freedom in some ways that I recognize that agency HR processes might not have, but that was a good experience. We did a double blind review of applications and we were really being intentional. And that was the first hiring process I'd ever been involved in where the hiring committee was as intentional as it was about trying to make sure we were considering DEI in our process, in the questions we asked, even in trying to remove bias and how we were screening people through the applications, Um, going so far as to remove pronouns, remove names, remove institutions. And I think those experiences made me really think a lot about hiring, even though I don't hire a ton of people now as a PhD student, just my research technicians. And then I also have over the last couple of years become involved in the AFS equal opportunities section in discussions with other members. This became something we were tasked with. And so, you know, coming up with a way to provide hiring managers with more guidance, there's almost an overwhelming amount out there, but distilling it down to something that somebody at an agency could use when I recognize that they don't have all the time in the world to go skimming the uh, decision-making literature or social science behavior type literature. And so there was just a lot of different factors. My own experience working with EOS, I think combination of frustration and curiosity that just has made me keep reading. And it's also something that as somebody who's aspiring to teach undergrads, knowing about the leaky pipeline or sieve, that it's something I need to think about in my teaching. So I also think about inclusivity in teaching practices as well. And it's all sort of meshed together. You know, needing to think about these things goes beyond hiring, but it's also something that I've realized we all probably should keep a little bit more in the back of our minds when we're making decisions about who we let in, so to speak, and who we keep out. Yeah, thanks, Hadley, for that background and how you got engaged. So I want to hear from both of you. We're talking about the hiring process kind of in like a grouped term, but let's be a little more specific. What aspects of the hiring process, George, for the training were you talking about? Was it everything? Tell our listeners what exactly those components are, or were there certain aspects that you were kind of focusing on wanting to learn how we can we do better in this part? I guess a little bit about our um, hiring process before we started this training. Um, we we have a, a hiring team and we have six to eight hiring facilitators on that team and we meet weekly to review the positions that are vacant and we, we are each tasked with facilitating a few of those positions and usually two to three at a time for our department. And so I will facilitate positions for accounting or the Parks Bureau. It won't necessarily be within my bureau. And my role is just to make sure that the hiring process is fair and that we are following the, the best available science in terms of our practices and just to help shepherd the position from the point of it getting posted to all the way through the onboarding of that new employee. Part of our process for the last 10 years, we've had hiring teams that it's made up. We always try to make sure they're gender balanced and that our questions are all written out beforehand with the ideal answer to, to make sure that they're scored fairly, that everybody on the interview panel is 
scoring answers the same way and using the same rubric. And that part, I, I felt like we had pretty good measures in place to make sure it was fair. And like, so going into this, the, the part that was interesting to me was what leads up to getting that applicant pool. And are there things that we were unintentionally doing that may have been limiting the diversity of our applicant pool? Because of, I mean, we are in Iowa, the middle of the country, and our applicant pools had limited diversity, just and they always have. So are there, is there anything that we can do to help improve that um, moving forward? And, and I think Hadley touched on a lot of that in her training, just things that for us to think about not necessarily that we were doing wrong, but just to, to think about how we might phrase things differently if we wanted to not unintentionally limit somebody from applying that we, we would like them to apply and, and see what type of skills and perspectives they could bring to our team. Thanks. So I heard you've already made changes to make sure you have balanced and diverse review panels. You were looking at your evaluation criteria or your rubric to make sure it was fair. And then you're interested in the job listing and kind of pre-application process. So Hadley, are there other aspects of the hiring process that we didn't just touch on that you also included in your talk? So the way we structured things intentionally was so I wasn't talking the whole time. I do that with my undergrads as well. So of events from that afternoon, we had about 45 minutes of me doing some sort of introductions and backgrounds. But the first thing we did was have different groups of supervisors break out at their table. And George had brought in a bunch of different position descriptions from all over the agency. There was an administrative position. There was a water engineer position. There was a hatchery technician. There was a whole bunch of different sort of standard position categories, if I'm using the right term, that Iowa DNR uses. And uh, we spent about 20, 25 minutes just having people break out and discuss those positions in light of the wording, the language used in them, in light of some of the best practices, do's and don'ts for just advertising in the first place. You have to make sure that the way wording is, folks feel like they can see themselves in that job. We also talked a little bit about evaluating the applications and once they're in and interviewing, and then did discussed briefly at the end, retention after we've hired, that often gets overlooked. So yeah, there were several different parts of the process that we hit on, some perhaps more strongly than others, but we did do that breakout to reevaluate the position description. And that actually, I don't know what you think, George, but sort of what came of that wasn't what I was expecting when after we finished that breakout, everybody sort of gave a summary from their table or if there was something strange that came up or interesting or even controversial, brought it to the bigger group's attention. Some of what came up surprised me. So I don't know, maybe George wants to talk about how some of those results or themes maybe were or weren't what he expected to have from that exercise. For me, the, the biggest takeaway were, was the first part you started with, just reviewing the our current job postings. And after hearing some of your advice and, and from the literature on BMPs for hiring, like how, how we may have been phrasing things where we were unintentionally limiting our applicant pool. I guess that's the one that really stuck with me is the fact that I think you had some stats from literature about if the, the word expertise was something, something we had a lot in our postings. Like we were looking for an expert on this topic and, and how... Some groups may not view themselves as much of an expert as, as others, and, and that we may be having people that are would be really good at the job not apply for it because they don't view themselves as an expert, even though we might or they might bring different skill set to the table that, that we hadn't even thought about. Yeah, that idea of being really conscious not to oversell a position seemed to be a theme that several of the supervisors have said, do I really need a person that does all these things? Is a hatchery technician really analyzing data or do they need to just be able to collect data and skim through it and know that it seems reasonable, not some you know meter somewhere is broken and, and needs to be fixed? Yeah, overselling, we talked quite a lot about making sure that we're realistic and very concise about what core competencies are necessary for a position 
And then tying that back to, you know, those those core competencies need to be very well articulated in the position description. And then when you're reviewing the applications, there should be a rubric and the different criteria for scoring in the rubric should go back to the core competencies that you're asking applicants to address in their applications. And the same would go for the interview. Imagine stair steps or some kind of cycle where each of those steps in the hiring process is linked. And you're always saying, does this applicant demonstrate that they have or could meet these competencies? I was surprised when I asked the question of how much wiggle room supervisors had to tweak the language. It was almost like you needed an outside perspective, and yes, I'm intentionally saying that, to come in and say, hey, this maybe seems like a dumb, basic question, but you've got these somewhat canned job descriptions or job position descriptions that you're going to put out. How much do you have the ability as a supervisor for that position in that office to make changes, to better articulate what you want, say, or to figure out, well, maybe I'm in a part of the state where this one thing that happens in another part of the state isn't necessary for this particular person to perform. And so it seemed like that was what was one of the things that surprised me most was just, oh, wait, we can change the wording in a position description to incorporate some of these different practices. When you say it like that, you think, well, duh. But I think you needed somebody from the outside to kind of poke and be like, I get that this is a process, that it's sort of a comfortable process that we regularly go through, but is there a way to incrementally, as George said, improve or tweak that process? And I think that experience in itself or observation in itself might be a good example of why a different perspective was helpful in addressing a problem, which in this case was a less diverse pool of applicants. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was a surprise that you came in with an outside perspective and blew that door right open because as hiring facilitators, we, we would send the posting out to the hiring supervisor and say, what changes do you want to make? And usually that posting was created directly from, we call them PDQs. It's a position description questionnaire, and it, it basically describes the position and, and what the duties are. And it, it's written very dry, and it's not necessarily supposed to be a posting, but it's, it just describes a position and every duty that they're supposed to perform. And, and it's used throughout their career to evaluate their performance and to make sure they're doing their job correctly. So it's written in, in legal terms almost. And we use that for the basis of the posting and we send it to the hiring supervisor and say, well, what changes do you want to make to this? Or is this how you want your posting to read? And usually we get back, yeah, it looks great. Or make a few of these changes. But usually it wasn't changed a whole lot. And Hadley came in there and started talking about how important it was to make the position sound as attractive as what it is and that you were describing everything that you wanted your candidates to include in their cover letter and resume. And we have had that flexibility to do that, to change that for years, but nobody has really ever done it until Hadley came in and pointed out, like, you should do this. And then they said, well, why aren't we doing that? And they said, well, we didn't think we could do that. So, well, you actually can. And it's encouraged. So I don't know if you've looked at any of our postings recently, Hadley, but it, since you've came to Iowa, it has changed our postings a lot. And we're trying a lot of different things on how we might improve them. And we haven't figured out a silver bullet yet, but I think they're definitely moving in the right direction. That's super cool to hear. I was like, should I look or shouldn't I look? (laughs) So now I'll look and see. One thing that I guess is related to that, that George followed up even after this workshop, I didn't want it to be like workshop, bam, I'm out of here, was we talked a, a little bit, like basically just, I mentioned it was a thing to use a gender decoder tool. And so was it a hatchery position? You put the position through and it flagged back on some different words as being, you know, coded as masculine or feminine. And once we talked back and forth about why they coded as they did, it also, I think, got circled back to that question of analysis. Is somebody really analyzing the data or are they collecting the data? Or George, I don't know if you remember some of the other ones. That was the one that stuck out to me. I remember when you sent me a text and said, hey, it coded these words. I was like, wait a minute. And then after going back through and reading it, I could see why. So I thought a tool like that seemed seemed useful not only for gender, but it also ended up highlighting something that might unintentionally dissuade perhaps younger or less experienced applicants from applying for a job that honestly they probably could do. But because it said analyze, they were a little frightened. Yeah, I think that was a surprise for me too. The gender decoder, I didn't go at all how I thought. Um, 
put the position through there and it flags a few words. And, and like Hadley said, we kind of discussed, like, why does it say analyze in there? And why did it flag this word? And is that really an important part of this position? And, and does this position really do a lot of analysis? So it was flagged for being masculine. But the reason why we ended up taking it out was, yeah, that we really are not expecting this entry level technician in a hatchery to be doing hardcore analysis. So we may be unintentionally limiting our applicant pool because they see that and expect like, oh, I don't have the skill set to do that yet. So I'm not, not ready. And there were other terms like that. What it did is it flagged those words and so we'd start reviewing them. But then what, what it caused is we started just reviewing the whole thing with that mindset of, does this really say what, we, what we're really looking for? And so it started out looking for an unintentional gender bias, but it turned into just a more critical review of, of what we said and how we said it, just to make sure we're getting the, the candidate we want. Yeah, this is so cool to hear a taco to a training to like implementing and then having actually redone products or job listings at the end of it. That's really nice to hear. This is a kind of an example of that process. I do want to comment on a couple of things you've just been saying with regards to the language and what we require for a job. For example, I have heard similar things where people end up putting a lot of things in the request required qualifications bucket when it could be preferred or encouraged qualifications and trying to reduce as much as possible what is literally required for a position. And I've also been in conversations when it came to doing my own professional development in graduate school talking about how in the end, a lot of hiring managers are looking for skills that aren't even necessarily technical expertise skills, but people skills, teamwork, you know, being able to communicate those skills that make you a good team member to work with in the long term, ability to adapt and learn quickly. These kinds of things are not easy to teach someone, but are extremely valuable. Whereas some of these technical expertise, being able to collect certain things from a fish or in the field, those can be taught to a lot of people if they have the capacity to learn, right? Just considering other skills as part of the job description. I'm curious if that was part of the discussion as well. One of the things I think I do remember talking about, if I didn't talk about it, it's one of those things I think about, uh, particularly when I'm hiring my own technicians, is pretty much in a nutshell what you said. Work ethic, honesty, the ability to follow instructions, the ability to ask questions and not just kind of BS your way through something because you don't want to seem wrong. A lot of that type of stuff, especially early career type positions or technician positions, is much harder to train. And so trying to capture that you don't have a lot of time in the interview. And so then you're calling references or reading letters of recommendations. And then that opens up a whole new list of, we'll just say things to be aware of when you're thinking of DEI considerations in a nutshell. There was that recent paper or note in Fisheries Magazine about the difference in language used for the Letters for the Skinner Award. There are many other studies, you know what? particularly university level between uh, genders in particular. And it it isn't that the writer, the writers can be male or female. Um, It's not as if only male writers say this about females that they're writing letters about. And that's partly why the gender decoder tool was, I think, useful to use. To try to get at those questions is difficult, but then if you're using your interaction from the interview and you're using those references, that's another thing you just have to be cognizant about and apply these sort of almost like a lens or a screen that you're looking through things with. Yeah, I mean, we're humans, right? But we're also scientists who think that we need to remove bias from everything that we do, but we're humans, so we have bias. So it's our constant battle to try and reduce that, be aware of it as much as possible when we're going through these hiring and selection processes. And I just want to go back to one other thing you had talked about, Hadley, which was this idea of trying to be as transparent about what the application components are and, you know, what we're looking for in a cover letter, for example. I've heard hiring managers say that the cover letter 
can really make or break people just that first impression. And so it's kind of this idea of the hidden curriculum, right? Removing that hidden curriculum to say, this is what we need from you. This is how we're going to evaluate you. And then keeping true to that within your own hiring process. We try to do the same thing. I'm a research coordinator. So I craft requests for proposals for research funding. And we try to do the same exact thing so that the people who are applying for money know what we're looking for, how they're going to be evaluated. And that's exactly the information we give to our reviewers when we go through the actual review process of those applications. So I appreciate that you also included that as part of your training. We should make sure that we talk about bias. Let's talk about bias. What do you want to talk about with bias? Okay. Well, well, I thought Project Implicit, some listeners may be familiar with it, but just Google Project Implicit and you'll be able to go and take what are called implicit association tests, which basically it means unconscious bias. So we've got different types of bias. Probably what most people think about when they think about bias is overt stuff. I don't think women make good fisheries biologists. I don't think a man is a good nurse. Those types of really overt biases. And those may or may not be stated, but the thing with implicit or unconscious bias is just that it's unconscious. We don't even know we're doing it. And I guess I should say it's important also to note, like you just said, everybody's bias. Like it's a part of how humans' brains evolve to navigate the world we live in. So we're going to have bias. And then the problem ends up happening, especially related to being able to make equitable decisions. The problem happens when you're not aware of your own bias, which is really hard when they're unconscious. So a good way to do that self-work is to explore things like implicit association tests. And so One of the homework assignments that the supervisors were asked to do sometime that week or a few days before the training was to take at least a couple of the tests. I think one they were requested to take was maybe the gender science one. Another one might have been the race career or the race science one. And it was interesting to hear the feedback because I know some of this can be really uncomfortable to discuss because a lot of times your unconscious or implicit bias is actually against what your stated belief system is. And I think that's what makes it so hard to talk about. And so there was one person, he said he kept restarting the tests to try to figure out, I think, how to play the system. Or he was wondering how long was too long to think about, you know, which face he clicked or taking a test multiple times to try to get a better score. Um, I, I won't call anybody out, but it was very interesting to see or listen to some of the reflections of, oh, I believe that. For example, I have taken the gender and science one. And as a PhD student who identifies as female in STEM, I have a slight negative association between women and STEM, which is like, oh, fiddle, that's a big deal. But that's part of what I think the self-work that needs to happen is, even if it is uncomfortable. And so that was one of our homework assignments was to take those bias tests, reflect, be aware Take steps to become aware of what your biases are. You don't even have to say them out loud if they're embarrassing to you. But the important thing is that you know, and you take that into that hiring practice or how how even you are with the people you already supervise. I heard a phrase the other day. I have actually written it down on a piece of paper and I keep it on my desk because I like it. I don't know what to do with it. The phrase is learning through productive discomfort. So that was what I felt like taking these tests got the wheels turning sort of for people to start thinking, I don't want to have to think about this. It's hard. It's making me uncomfortable, but I need to think about this. I have five kids, three of which are African-American. So when I took the race bias test, I was convinced like all you have to do, you can get it to say whatever you want. You just have to take your time answering these questions. So I went through it and didn't get the result I thought I should have being a parent of three African-American kids. So I did it again and then I did it a third time. And (laughs) for one thing, it gave me a lot more confidence in the test. Like if you approached it correctly and, and tried to go through as quickly as you could, there was some real bias there that I didn't think I should have and that I, that I did have. So like Hadley said, it was uncomfortable, but being aware of it and, and taking that into account when you are reviewing applications or, or interviewing people is important. I was one who was trying to game the system and, and figured out it, it was smarter than me. So. <laughs> 
It, it also seems like those types of experiences or feedback of that are kind of humbling and comfortable, that just goes to show that whatever bias you have often doesn't stem from some sense of like innate individual morality. It's something that happens at the societal level that we're just programmed that way, whether we like it or not. But the unprogramming seems to brains are malleable. We can always learn and change, but you're never going to be able to learn and change if you're not aware that you need to learn and change. So sort of that unprogramming process, the first step seems like being aware that it's an issue in the first place and acknowledging that, yeah, this is going on. This is happening at a higher level than just me, but I can do this to start doing what I call the self-work, not like getting it perfect because you're never going to be perfect. Those steps to try to make little inroads. Yeah, thank you both for sharing that. I totally agree with you, Hadley. Like, we have all seen the media, TV, movies, newspapers. We've grown up in a society that tells us certain stories in the United States, at least. And it's difficult to tell your brain something different when that's kind of what you've been brought up with over and over again. So I appreciate you, George, sharing your personal story and then having (laughs) such a kind of a weird result and then even wanting to basically deny it by trying to take the test over again. Right. And I heard you also say, like, I shouldn't have this. Right. But. I think that's something that we have to figure out as scientists is to not deny that we have bias and also not blame ourselves that we have bias. Like we were raised in a human society that trained us a certain way. And so like Hadley said, we have to figure out how to accept that we have that navigate that, mitigate that bias as much as we can. And I like this idea of deprogramming, which is very, very challenging. One thing that I started doing after I had first heard this idea of deprogramming was on science Twitter, which some of you may or may not be on. I tried to follow as many scientists of color as I possibly can, because there's this really weird algorithm on Twitter where it shows you what you already have been liking and following and sharing, right? So what I was seeing was reinforcing what I had been told that there are just are not scientists of color to draw from for a diverse workforce. But in fact, there are many, many, many (laughs) scientists of color, Black, Indigenous, other people of color on Twitter, and they want to be here, want to be part of the workforce, are amazing individuals, but I literally could not see them. And so for me, it's a way of like visually teaching my brain, like, look, scientists of color, look, scientists of color. And I am basically like through this visual processing, honestly, changing my brain in a way to think like, yeah, these people are here. Why are we not able to actually recruit and retain them? Because what we're doing is not an inclusive, you know, workplace. Now I'm rambling, but I'm just very excited by everything you've been saying. Something that I find most difficult to navigate, because I will say if if you're thinking of a fisheries field management biologist, imagine who you see when you see that. I would be in the majority. But in talking about these things, I don't want to seem self-serving. And I also don't want to turn off or alienate folks who are in a historical majority. So that I think it's really important to highlight that when we have these biases and we uncover them, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's not meant to be attacking. And I think that's one of those things for sure. It makes it hard, hard to talk about. And that's one of those things that in this training, you tried to be cognizant of is this stuff is hard for a reason. We're kind of taught that it's individual morality. But it is a wider, like, I can't say that enough that it's this wider thing that needs to be fixed. And so outside of those little steps, but if I'm a white scientist, whatever I can do to try to seed some of the power that I get just because I'm white and I'm in the society in the United States, I can do things like, hey, so-and-so who happens to be Black said this at a staff meeting, and then somebody else who was white repeated it, make sure to acknowledge, you know, who the idea came from. So 
that's the thing that I find most struggle is like not wanting to alienate groups by acknowledging bias and those that self-correction or that self-deprogramming. It's not at all meant to be attacking it. I guess. And that was one of the things I found most challenging in giving the workshop was to make sure I navigated in that a way that wasn't going to turn certain groups off and wasn't going to be confrontation-y. Yeah. George, was there any sort of negative reaction to the training? I don't think I have heard too much from the negative reaction. I think there was some skepticism going into it because they felt like, oh, we do all these things already to make sure we have a fair hiring process. And and the reason why we don't have a a diverse applicant pool is because this is Iowa. The state is 95% white, so that's what we get for our applicants. But I think coming out of it, like, yeah, that maybe that's what's driving the lack of diversity in our applicant pool, or maybe it's some of these other things we haven't thought about. But We can do our part by making sure that we are implementing all these best management practices to make sure that we are not unintentionally creating a less diverse applicant pool. And if if it's still not as diverse as what we'd like it to be, then at least we have done our part. We can't use that as a crutch. Just keep saying, well, this is Iowa. Our system is fair. and, And if they want to work here, they'll apply. I guess that probably sums up my takeaway from the meeting that people went into it kind of skeptical that we were doing enough and, and they came out of it with the idea that, yeah, there's probably more we can do and maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe it won't, but let's try and see. That growth mindset of saying we can always do things better. We can be doing a good job and still need to potentially reevaluate and do things better. And then also consider that things change over time. In five years, we're probably going to have a different definition of what makes an inclusive hiring process than what we're talking about today. So being humble, I guess, (laughs) is the lesson. couple of folks when I stayed after everybody camped because it was a two-day training. So I stayed with the camping crew and sitting there on the campfire, there was one person I remember in particular. He said, you know, I like to think he was honest because I think he'd had a couple beers. He said, I really thought this was just going to be one of those fluffy check the box kind of trainings. But some of the things that we went over are actually going to be useful and applicable to my work. And maybe that sounds pretty blunt, but to me, that was a helpful feedback because I do sometimes think some folks maybe go through saying they're doing some type of DEI practice just to check a box. Whereas I felt like that was a genuine, oh, I learned something. And so that was like, if nothing else ever came of it, having one person say that kind of a thing made the seven hour drive up there worthwhile. Yeah, I want to just give big kudos to you, Hadley, for putting together this training and going out there and and doing a two-day training. That's amazing. And then George for actually reaching out to Hadley and bringing her to your workplace. That's amazing. I want to ask if you have any other takeaways from this experience you haven't already mentioned or where you're hoping to go next with regards to inclusive hiring. I agree completely. Thank you, Hadley, for coming in and putting together that awesome training because whoever that was talking to you around the campfire is correct. We check a lot of boxes for training and <laughs> a lot of times that's all it is, is just checking the box and saying we've done it. But I think a lot of people, probably most people truly did get something from that training. So, And even after the training, Hadley put together all of the literature that was available and packaged and we shared those folders with everybody and people are using it. I think you hit on it earlier, like as supervisors, we're busy and we don't have time to look into some of the stuff that we really know we should be. So it was really nice having it all in one spot. So when we do have time to look into it, we don't have to seek it out and and it's all available there. So that was great. One of the other takeaways that Hadley hit on at the end of her training was retaining. Like it's it's good that we have, are going to implement all these practices to make sure we're recruiting the the best and the most diverse applicant pool. And then that we're hiring the, the best candidates for each job. But then we need to make sure that we're, we have an inclusive work culture that is not driving them away and that we're retaining them. We always kind of brag about our retention rate. We have our, I think our average retention time is 28 years once we hire a position. So people that we hire stick around. And so that's why we spend a lot of time on the making sure the hiring process is correct is because each of those positions costs roughly 100000 a year for the salary and support. And so if somebody stays for 30 years, you're talking about a $3 million decision every time you, you hire somebody. So we want to do it right. 
but also once we get them in the door, we want to make sure that, that we're retaining them and that our work culture is inclusive and that we're not driving away some of these people that we worked hard to get onto the team at a higher rate than we do our, our traditional candidates. I guess as far as doing hiring, I'm probably not going to do very much until I graduate. So first order of business is uh, finishing up. But one of the, as I said, we were sitting around the campfire um, one of the supervisors who was there came up to me. And so these aren't just all fish people there. Uh, actually, most of them weren't fish people. And so they wouldn't have been familiar with my research or anything. It was interesting. Some of them said, so are you going to go back to fisheries? Um, as if like I wasn't in fisheries, but it made me think like maybe there's a missing hole or a gap that there needs to be a afternoon or one day type training or instruction developed that's specifically for agencies, you know, like it would be the kind of driving roadshow where you go do a combination of just like George said, summarizing all that folder. I didn't figure you guys wanted to read all that stuff, but I thought it's possible you might want to reference it later on when it becomes more urgently relevant. Something like that, where it's an interactive day, you bounce ideas off one another, you reflect on some of what's in uncomfortable, you talk about how to improve processes. And so I think if I had all the time in the world, uh, I'd love to be able to incorporate even more of you know the reading and explorations I've done outside of fisheries into developing some type of workshop, whether it's recorded or you think it would be better in person for the rapport participants and breakout groups but who knows the future but it seems like something like that is might be helpful so you heard it here first hadley's going to organize a full day workshop at afs in grand rapids <laughs> michigan in 2023 <laughs> uh, <laughs> jokes aside that sounds like a great workshop that could do some training some reflective discussions that I think a lot of agencies who attend American Fisheries Society and other different organizations would probably benefit a lot from. So I know that's a little floaty cloud dream right now, but I would guess a lot of people would be interested in that. I was thinking of it like within one agency, like Iowa going through position descriptions that that particular agency has to work with. But I could see new ideas hatching if you have, say, somebody who's used to hiring in the federal system versus somebody who's used to hiring in the state system. And even within the state system, it seemed like the different bureaus or divisions had some sort of like nuances in what they did. And then, I mean, a lot of this literature comes out of academic hiring. Sure, it has application to agency. And I've been trying to make that be that in-betweener to translate it from its relevance from academia to what it might look like applied to the agency side. And yeah, I could see that being either one, have it be a training that's agency only or some combination of agency and academic because they're each going to have their own struggles and approaches. I was thinking mostly for agency specific because it seems like academics talk about it more, maybe. You're right on there. I mean, why only have a CV resume workshop at a conference? You could also do a job posting workshop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of those things that almost sounds silly to say, like, oh, we know how to do that. Do you? I don't know. Just asking. <laughs> We started the planning process for this meeting. I think it was in April or May. And I met Hadley in September and our meeting was in October. So in terms of, is there a market out there for this type of workshop? I would say definitely because we are having a hard time finding anybody that could speak to hiring that was relevant to an agency and just relevant to state government in general and, and trying to incorporate Deja BMPs into a, a hiring process for a state agency. Like there's not a lot of people out there that are willing to come talk about that. And we, we found presenters that could touch on certain parts of it, but having an all-in-one package. And I think the idea of having the, our whole agency go through this, it wasn't, and we have five fisheries supervisors. So if we all went to an AFS meeting and all went to a workshop, that would be five of the, the 80. And if you want to, to make changes to the agency culture, I mean, doing it with every supervisor in the room there, then that was a, an awesome way of, of getting this in, incorporated into our, our agency's hiring practices. And I sure think it helped having, I mean, I don't have extensive experience with agencies, but if you add it all together, I've got enough of a smattering that I feel like 
it helps give me a perspective to take literature that wasn't about hiring at a state agency and make it applicable, I guess. That's sort of where my heart is because I used to work at an agency and I had my own frustrations, you know, associated with seeing good people slip through the cracks and wondering about the mechanics of how the decisions get made. Well, some great ideas coming up here. So I know we didn't even necessarily talk that in detail about the types of changes that could be made in the process, mostly because this is kind of like a plug for Hadley and Jane's wonderful toolkit that they're beginning to assemble. Is that right, Hadley? So this whole thing has morphed maybe in a different direction from what I expected. So the whole point of the original talk at the AFS meeting was really to garner input from listeners or attendees that we hoped would be hiring managers in need of or wanting to incorporate more best management practices in hiring. And so uh, we even had a little survey they could take that was about, you know, what type of format would be helpful for you uh, as a hiring manager um, to get these resources. So uh, we floated the idea of, do you just want a page with a bunch of internet links? Do you want like that folder I made available to Iowa that just has a bunch of, you know, it's not an exhaustive list of the physical references because I know not everybody has reference to journals. Do you want some type of annotated bibliography where it it distills what seem to be the important points of a certain paper and then the reference if you want to dig deeper? Do you want something recorded? A workshop was not on the list of things we were sort of pulling potential listeners for. And so, yeah, the, I don't know what direction we'll go. I was originally thinking something just on the equal opportunity section website that hiring managers and fisheries fields could go to and click, 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 but maybe it makes sense to do some combination of a training or that in addition to a training. I'm not sure. I really want input from hiring managers. So I got a lot of good input from George and the other folks at Iowa, but I, especially agency folks, I mean, like I said, there's a lot out there already posted for thinking about these kinds of things in the academic world. I would love for input. Like what is frustrating? What are your limitations? Or do you feel like your limitations are within the structure of your hiring process? Are there certain parts of the hiring process that you'd like more assistance with in terms of trying to apply more of a DEI or deja lens to it? What physical materials would be helpful? Is that what would be helpful? Would something that's more interactive be helpful? So I want that feedback. So anybody, please, if they're listening to the podcast, drop me an email, even if you think it's like a silly thing, or if you have resources that you think are relevant, as I said, I'd There's a lot out there, getting it in one place and then trying to distill for the, you know, super busy supervisor or PI, trying to distill that in a way that's like, this is probably the most relevant. Here's the paper. If you want to read more, go try to do a better job in your hiring practices, knowing that you're never going to be perfect, but little steps are what it's made of. So that's my plug to say, please email me if you have input on what would be helpful for the development of a resource for hiring managers. So I guess an answer to your question is, I'm not really sure how this is going to go now because it, it's definitely morphed and I've just let it morph from what I thought would just be a web page with a bunch of links. Maybe we can link your survey in the podcast blurb. Would that be helpful? That would, that would be awesome. Okay, so let me rephrase. This podcast episode was a teaser for the impending resource (laughs) that Hadley is going to create. If you want to get more guidance for your workplace, you need to fill out the survey. (laughs) Tell them they're in a drawing for an Amazon gift card. That's what everybody does. We need a fishy gift for for our listeners. But no, they're going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Isn't that right? Hopefully. We'll see. Or guilt. Guilt works too. Always. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you both so much for being here today and for sharing the process that you've all been through. I hope our listeners have learned at least one thing and gotten some incentive for looking into some of these implicit bias tests, um, gender decoder tool, thinking about how they could go through this process with their own hiring practices and look forward to potentially more resources 
is coming out from Hadley and the Equal Opportunities section. So thanks, Hadley and George. Any other final words you want to share with us today? I want to give a disclaimer that I have to finish my PhD first, but I I hear Craig's voice in the background. No, not really. Okay, if anyone wants to pay Hadley to... Uh, just kidding. Of course, you do need to finish your PhD, but maybe someone else who's listening might be interested in helping to create this resource as well. So you can always reach out to us and help us do the good work. George, any disclaimers you want to share? <laughs> I think this, like I said before, we were looking for this presentation because of the current hiring market. It's it's different, but I think that also affords an opportunity because there's going to be a lot of other state agencies and federal agencies that are going through the same process and, and, and realizing that now's a good time to incorporate change. So we had been going along for 15 years with, with one process. So this kind of prompted us to look into this more. So hopefully um, that the timing will help with what the equal opportunity sections after getting this incorporated across this country. I do want to thank George for going out on the limb and giving me a PhD student who is not a social scientist and who doesn't you know, deal with behavior or how humans make decisions, the opportunity to share some of what's arisen purely out of a combination of curiosity and frustration on my part. And so that's kind of neat. Yeah, I guess I will probably add that, that I think one of the reasons why Hadley's training was received so well by our staff is because she came from other state agencies and, and people viewed her as one of us. And she's talking to us about this topic that is somewhat sensitive, but she's coming at it from the standpoint of and this, this, we all have bias. We all need to be aware of it. And she's not scolding us and, and she's not a social scientist. She's just one of us that has spent some time looking into this issue. So I think that was a big reason why it, it, it was received well. These are some golden nuggets we're getting right here at the end of our episode today. So thank you both again. Thanks to our listeners for chiming in. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Special thanks to the Fisheries Podcast for hosting us on their established feed at fisheriespodcast.podbean.com and for also tackling important diversity and inclusion topics in their normal feed. Also, find us and other diversity and inclusion resources on diversity.fisheries.org. The custom lo-fi music beat was crafted by Darius Armstrong. Look for his music name, Karl Marx, on www.bandcamp.com slash releases. We are very grateful to all those AFS leaders and members who have provided support and feedback as we have brought this podcast to life.